Good morning. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist, and it's a very great pleasure for me to introduce Tracy Chevalier at this Meet the Author event. Tracy Chevalier is the author of five wonderful novels, including Fallen Angels, The Lady with the Unicorn, and Burning Bright. She is also the author of Girl with a Pearl Earring, a book that has sold more than three million copies in 36 languages and been made into an Oscar-nominated film with Colin Firth and Scarlett Johansson. It's also been a play in the West End of London last year. Tracy comes to us today, though, with her sixth book, and it's, it's really gripping, and it will delight her millions of avid readers. Remarkable Creatures, like all of her novels, is set in the past. And again, she brings to astonishing life real historical characters, as she has done with so much of her intelligent fiction. This time it is Mary Anning, the fossil-obsessed working-class girl who discovered whole plesiosaurs on the Dorset Cliffs in the 19th century. Remarkable Creatures tells how Mary Anning Mary Anning's finds invited people to question the literal truths of the Bible and paved the way for evolutionary theory. In the year the world is celebrating the bicentenary of Charles Darwin and at the 150th anniversary of the publication of Origin of Species, this is a most timely novel. Published this week, so the book is being launched here today, Remarkable Creatures is a remarkable book, a deliciously satisfying, thought-provoking read, achieving something Tracy said she believed to be her biggest challenge, making paleontology sexy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Tracy Chevalier. It's great to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tracy, shall we talk about <coughs> Mary Anning, um, who has yeah. largely been forgotten by, by history, I think, um, and who uh, was um, struck by lightning as a, as a child, so perhaps you can tell us that story, but who then lived to have all her thunder sto stolen by male geologists. <laughs> You've been working if on you, that yeah. metaphor, haven't you? No, it just <laughs> popped into my head. Anyway, I mean, why Mary Anning? What drew you to her? Well, um, I found out about her first a few years ago. There's a, a dinosaur museum in Dorchester in Dorset. And I had a six-year-old son who was pretty dinosaur-obsessed at the time. And we went to it, a little place, but there's a, there's a corner of the room that was devoted to Mary Anning. And I had never heard of her, but there was a wonderful um, sketch of her wearing a top hat uh, that was to protect her from the falling rocks from the cliffs. And all of, she had all these very long woolen dress on, and she was in the, uh, on, the, on the beach with her, with her, at, her, her hammer. And um, <clears throat> she just looked so curious. And, uh, and they said that when she was 11, she and her brother discovered a skull of this creature. They didn't know what it was, they thought it was a crocodile. And then later she discovered the rest of the body. So they put it together and they found that it wasn't a crocodile, it had paddles instead of 
feet, and it had a huge eye about that big, and um, instead of a little piggy eye the way crocodiles do. And so they didn't know what it was, and they sold it to the lord of the manor um, of, of Lyme Regis, which is where they found it. And it, it, it created, um, from there on, they found others, and they found later on a plesiosaur. And, and, it, and uh, middle class scientists, uh, male scientists, came down and bought them, and she took them out fossil hunting. And I had never heard of any of this, because I'm not really science oriented. And um, most people who know of Mary Anning know from their childhood, because Quite a few books have been written about her for children, and uh, uh, because because she did something so wonderful when she was a kid, and um, and I I was just fascinated by her because she was um, prickly, independent. She never married, and I thought most importantly for a novelist, she had a wonderfully uh, dramatic beginning of her life when she was 15 months old. She was uh, had been a sickly child, and a woman took her out to watch this. Um, these riders in a field, and there's a big thunderstorm, and they all went and sheltered under an elm tree, which of course is what you're not meant to do, um, but nobody knew that at the time, and lightning struck, and the woman who was carrying her and two women next to her all died. Um, and Mary was, um, was revived by being put in a, a, a bath of tepid water. And, uh, and they said that she had been very um, sickly before that, but she became very lively and intelligent afterwards. And I just thought, that is so perfect. Uh, I don't even have to make it up. I can just write it down. And, and I've got my beginning of a book. And indeed, the book does begin with the lightning strike. And um, I just thought, I, 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 I know it's hard to, to write about fossils if you've never done it, but um, I like a challenge. And actually, I had been thinking that I, I didn't always want to write about art or literature. I should try to branch out a bit. I, I don't ever want to feel that I'm in a rut. So I was trying to, um, to, to look for other things to challenge me. And I thought, this will be a challenge. And she's such a, an interesting woman. I just want to see if I can make a, make a book for her. Well, you've certainly done that. Now, you mentioned that, uh, obviously, her life was saved when she was a baby. But I wonder, Tracy, if you'd like to read to us a section of the book where her life is again threatened, please. Yes. Um, this is a, I'm going to go up to the lectern. Um, this is, a, is actually where the novelist in me comes out. I, um, I made up this scene. But there were several times when she, Mary had um, dangerous events occur to her uh, where she almost lost her life. And she got so into fossil hunting that sometimes she, she ignored the tide and it would come up and she would be waist deep, have to wade home waist deep in water, scramble up over the cliffs to get home. Um, and once she was crushed between a wall and a, um, a cart, the cartwheel crushed her. So she, and once uh, in, uh, she had a little dog named Trey and he um, was uh, buried in a landslide and, uh, and he was only a few feet from her. So if she had been three feet over, she would have died too. So she was constantly dealing with the sort of adversarial conditions of the beach. Um, if you've ever been to the cliffs, to, to the beach by Lyme Regis or Charmouth, it is quite wild and windy. And um, I'm going to read a scene where she has to take on nature a little bit. Um, now, after she found the first ichthyosaur, she was, uh, she was 12 at the time, and um, men started coming down from London and elsewhere to go fossil hunting with her. Um, and it was, um, this is a scene that takes place when she's 15. And um, she goes out with a man named William Buckland, who is, um, who became very well known as the first professor of geology at Oxford, 
um, kind of a, a very unusual man in his own right. He, used to, he decided to eat his way through the animal kingdom. And he'd eaten everything from hedgehogs to hyenas, all kinds of stuff. And um, he was a little bit crazed. Um, and he, she, he asked her to take him out fossil hunting on the beach. And um, he was there for a whole summer. Or he was there for I mean, all his life, really, and all her life. They, they became great friends. But when she was 15, this would have been seen as a little bit risque to be um, for a girl to be with a man on her own on the beach. This was just not done. And so um, they had to have a chaperone. Um, and uh, in, in real, this I've made up, but in real life, uh, so there were letters that referred to Marianne attending Mr. Buckland on the beach. And, and this is sort of disapproved of. So I, I imagine they might have had a chaperone. And this is what happens one, one day when they're all out. Now, I cannot do a Dorset accent, or an English accent, or a Scottish accent, so I'm going to do American accent. You can just imagine it. <clears throat> My trade is best done in bad weather. Rain flushes fossils out of the cliffs, and storms scrub the ledges clean of seaweed and sand, so more can be seen. Joe may have left fossils for upholstery because of the weather, but I was like Pa. I never minded the cold or the wet as long as I was finding curies. Mr. Buckland also wanted to go out even when it was raining. Fanny had to come with us and would huddle wretched in her shawl, curling up amongst the boulders to shelter against the wind. We were often the only folk upon beach then, for in poor weather, visitors preferred to go to the bathhouses, which had heated water, or to play cards and read the papers at the assembly rooms, or to drink at the three cups, only serious hunters went out in the rain. One rainy day towards the end of the summer, I was upon beach with Mr. Buckland and Fanny. There was no one else on that stretch of shore, though Captain Curie passed by at one point, nosing about to see what we were up to. Mr. Buckland had discovered a ridge of bumps not far from where we dug out the jaw in church cliffs and thought they might be a row of vertebraries from the same animal. I was chiseling away at it to try and uncover the bones when Mr. Buckland left my side. After a minute, Fanny come to stand close by, and I knew Mr. Buckland must be pissing in the water. He was always careful not to embarrass me and slipped off to do his business far away, far enough away that I didn't have to see. I was used to him doing that, but it bothered Fanny, and it were the one time she come up to the cliff by me. Even after several weeks in his company, she was still a little scared of Mr. Buckland. I felt sorry for her. The rain was coming down hard and dripping on her face from her bonnet rim. It was too wet for her to sew or to knit, and there's nothing worse than having nothing to do in the rain. Why don't you just turn away when he's down there, I, I said, trying to be helpful. He's not going to wave it in your face. He's too much of a gentleman for that. Fanny shrugged. You ever seen one, she said after a moment. I think it was the first question she'd asked me in 10 years. Maybe the rain had wore her down. Just Joe's, I said, when he were little. You? I didn't think she would answer. But then she said, once at the Three Cups, a man got so drunk, he dropped his trousers in the kitchen, thinking it were the privy. We both laughed. For a second, I wondered if we might be starting to get on better. We'd no chance for that. There were no warning, no pebbles raining down, or the groan of stone sp splitting from stone. It were that sudden that one moment Fanny and I were laughing about men's parts by the cliff, 
And the next, the cliff just dropped, and I was knocked down and buried in the thick, rocky clay. Though I don't remember doing it, I'd thrown my hand up to my mouth as the cliff came down on me, and that made a little space for me to breathe in. I couldn't see anything, and though I struggled, I couldn't move at all, for the clay was cold and wet and heavy, and it held me fast. I couldn't even call out. All I could do was think that I was going to die and wonder what God would say to me when he met me. There was a long, long time when nothing happened. Then I heard a scrabbling and felt hands clawing at me and wiping my eyes, and I opened them and saw Mr. Buckland's terrified face, and I thought maybe I would not meet God yet. Oh, Mary, he cried. Sir, get me out, sir. I, I... Mr. Buckland pulled at the rocks and mud, but could not move them. It's too heavy, Mary. I can't get you with no tools. He was in a kind of daze, as if he couldn't think straight. We heard a cry then. We had forgot about Fanny. She was just a few feet from us and weren't so heavily buried as me, but there was blood on her face. She began to scream, and Mr. Buckland jumped up and went to her. The clay was loose around her, and he managed to shift it enough that he could pull her out. He wiped the blood from her face, and in doing so, knocked the bonnet from her head, for he was scared and clumsy. It got caught up in a gust of wind and rolled away down the beach. Losing her bonnet seemed to upset Fanny more than anything else. My bonnet, she cried. I need my bonnet. Mam will kill me if I lose it. Then she screamed again as Mr. Buckland tried to move her. Her leg is broken, Mr. Buckland panted. I'm going to have to leave you for help. At that moment, part of the cliff further along crumbled and crashed to the ground. Fanny screamed again, Don't leave me, sir! Please don't leave me in this godforsaken place! I didn't want to be left either, but I did not cry out. Best to carry her, sir, if you can. At least you can save one of us. Mr. Buckland looked horrified. Oh, I don't think I should do that. It wouldn't be proper. It seemed even he, who ate field mice and carried a bright blue sack and pissed in the sea, was uneasy about holding a girl in his arms. But now is not the time for worrying about what was proper. Put an arm around her shoulders and another under her knees and lift, sir, I coached. She's such a little thing. You should be able to carry her, even a scholar like you. Mr. Buckland did what I said and heaved Fanny into his arms. She screamed again in pain and shame. Letting her arms flop wide, she turned her head away from him. For God's sake, Fanny, put your arms round him, I cried. Help the man or he'll never get you back. Fanny obeyed me, throwing her arms round his neck and burying her face against his chest. Take her to the bathhouse, that's the closest place, and send people straight back with spades. I wouldn't normally direct a gentleman, so, but Mr. Buckland seemed to have lost his wits. Hurry, please, sir. I can't be bare being alone like this. As he nodded, another section of cliff fell away with a crash. Mr. Buckland flinched, terror written all over his face. I fastened my eyes on his. Sir, pray for me. And, and if I die, tell Mam and Joe. Don't say such a thing, Mary. I'll be back shortly. Mr. Buckland would not listen, but staggered away, Fanny gazing at me with glazed eyes over his shoulder. Later, Dr. Carpenter would set her leg, but the break was awkward and never healed properly and left her with one leg shorter than the other. She could never walk far or stand for long and could never again come out upon beach, 
not that she would want to. Whenever I saw her hobbling down Broad Street to the Three Cups, I ducked my head to avoid that fearful blue gaze. Of course, I didn't know any of that then, held fast in the landslip. I watched Mr. Buckland weaving down the beach with his burden, not going fast enough for me, and wondered why it was that the pretty ones were always rescued before the plane. That was how the world worked. With her big eyes and dainty features, Fanny did not get stuck, whereas I was caught in the mud, the cliff threatening to crumble on top of me. There was a lot of time to think now. I thought of Mr. Buckland and how odd it were that for an ordained man so interested in what God had been up to in the past, he hadn't been much comfort with prayers, but run away from them. I closed my eyes and said a long prayer myself for God to spare me to let me live on to help Mam and Joe, to find more crocs, to have enough to eat and coal to burn, even to have a husband and children one day. And please, God, make Mr. Buckland a runner rather than a walker today. Make him find someone quick and come back. Although Mr. Buckland was happy wandering miles along the cliff and regularly walked to Axminster and back while in Lyme, he did not hurry. He had a scholar's belly on him, and I worried that with Fanny in his arms, he would not get back quick enough to save me. It was quiet now. The wind had died down, and a fine misty rain sprayed my face. Now and then I heard the faint skitter of more debris tumbling down the cliff to the ground. I couldn't see it because it was behind me, and I couldn't turn my head all the way round. That was the worst, hearing it and not knowing how close it was or if it would bury me. The mud that held me was cold and heavy and pressing on my chest, making it hard to breathe. I closed my eyes for a bit, thinking that sleep might make the time go faster. But I couldn't sleep. So instead, I followed Mr. Buckland in my mind as he went back to Lyme. Now he's passing where we found the first crocodile, I thought. Now he's passing the ledge with the ammonite impressions. Now he's reached the bend where the path starts. Now he's in sight of Jefford's baths. Maybe Mr. Jefford is there and will come running faster than Mr. Buckland. I traced the path there and back again, but no one came. I opened my eyes. Mr. Buckland was a dot along church cliffs. I couldn't believe he hadn't got further. But then it was hard to say how much time had passed. It could have been 10 minutes or hours. I looked the other way, down the beach towards Charmouth. There were no boats out or fishermen checking crab pots, for it was too rough. There was no one at all. And the tide had turned and was slowly creeping up. I gave up looking for help and begun to notice things closer to me. The landslip had caused a churning up of rocks, caused, caught in an ooze of blue-gray clay. My eyes flicked over the stones near to me and come to rest on a familiar shape about four feet from me, a ring of overlapping bony scales the size of my fist, a crocodile's eye. It were like it was staring straight at me. I cried out with the surprise of seeing it. Then, several feet past the eye, there was a movement. It was only tiny, but I cried out again, and it moved again. It was just a little pink spot sticking out of the clay, and with the rain in my eyes, it was hard to see what it was. I wondered if it were a crab scrabbling about in the mud. Hey, I called, and it moved. It was not a crab, but a finger. I felt so relieved and sick at the same time that I think I fainted. When I come to, I looked at the spot again, and it wasn't moving. I cleared my throat. Who's that, I said. Who's that? The finger moved. 
I was so happy not to be alone that I laughed aloud. Joe, is it Joe? The finger didn't move. Ma'am, Miss Philpot? No movement. I knew it couldn't have been any of them, for I would have seen, I would have known they were upon beach. But who else would be out in such weather? I suppose it could have been one of the children from Lyme, come to spy on Mary Anning and the man she attended, hoping to see something scandalous they could report back on. But it seemed unlikely. We would have spotted them if they were upon beach, unless they'd been on the cliff, which meant they'd come down with the slip. It was a miracle they was alive. It was thinking of the cliff and the landslips that made me realize who it must be. Captain Curie? I remember now I had seen him earlier. Even as the finger wriggled, I saw the handle of his spade poking out of the clay that had buried him. I was so glad he was there that, in, that any spite I felt towards him vanished. Captain Curie! Mr. Buckland's gone to get help. They'll be there to dig us out. They'll be back to dig us out. The finger moved, but less than before. Was you up on the cliff and come down with a slip? The finger didn't move. Captain Curie, can you hear me? Are your bones broke? Fanny's legs broke, I think. Mr. Buckland's taken her with him. He'll come back soon. I was chattering on to mask my terror. The finger stayed stiff, pointing up at the sky. I knew what that meant and begun to cry. Don't go. Stay with me. Please stay. Between me and Captain Curie, the crocodile eye watched us both. Captain Curie and I are going to be like the croc, I thought. We will become fossils, trapped upon beach forever. After a while, I stopped looking at Captain Curie's finger, now as still as any rock caught in the clay. I couldn't bear to watch the tide steadily rising. Instead, I gazed up into the flat white sky, a few pewter clouds swimming about in it. After spending so much of my life looking down at stones, it was strange to look up into emptiness. I spotted a gull circling high above. It seemed it would never get closer, but would always be a dot hovering far away. I kept my eyes fixed on it and did not look at the finger or the crock again. It was so quiet I wanted to make a noise to break the spell. I wanted the lightning to pass through me and jolt me into life, for I was feeling the opposite of that sensation. A slow darkness was creeping through my body. There had been plenty of deaths in our family, Pa and all the children. I spent most of my time collecting what were dead bodies of animals, but I had not thought much of my own death before. Now I was finding that dying was cold and hard and painful and dull. It went on too long. I was exhausted and growing bored with it. I had too much time to think about whether I was going to die from the tide coming in and drowning me, or the mud pressing the air out of me as it had Captain Curie, or a falling rock striking me. I couldn't think for long or it hurt too much, like touching a piece of ice. I tried to think of God instead and how he would help me through it. I never told anyone this, but thinking of him then didn't make me less scared. It was hard to breathe now with the mud so heavy. My breathing got slower, and so did the beat of my heart, and I closed my eyes. When I come to, someone was digging in the clay round me. I opened my eyes and smiled. Thank you. I knew you would come. Oh, thank you for coming to me. If you want to know who gets her out, you have to read it. Thank you.
Tracy, the uh, the story is told in two voices. Yeah. We hear Mary's voice, but we also hear the voice of a woman called Elizabeth Philpott. Would you like to tell us about Elizabeth, please? Well, when I was researching Mary Anning, um, Elizabeth's name kept coming up again and again, and I found out that they were very good friends and had gone fossil hunting on the beach uh, almost every day. And uh, it, I discovered that Elizabeth Philpott was 20 years older than Mary, and probably more surprising, she was middle class, whereas Mary Anning was firmly working class and very poor working class. Um, in fact, that's why Mary looked for fossils to begin with, because her father taught her, and then when he died, when she was 10, she began selling fossils, and that was how she and her family made a living. Elizabeth Philpott was from a London family, um, and she and two of her sisters moved down to Lyme Regis when she was in her 20s, and they, um, none, none of the three of them ever married. Um, they're very perfect Jane Austen novel, really, um, and uh, Elizabeth had this great passion for fossil fish, and she went out fossil hunting for them. But she had the great difference between her and Mary is that she didn't have to sell, she had a little income, so she didn't have to sell the fossils for a living. And um, I became very interested in her because I thought it would be good to have a counterpoint. Mary is a very, is a fantastic character, but you need to have somebody who's a little bit different who looks at it from a different perspective, particularly um, things like uh, the religious aspect of this, um, of, of finding fossils that are of animals that are clearly extinct. Um, in those days, nobody knew what extinction was. They didn't have that concept. Most people, educated people, everyone thought that the world was 6,000 years old and that the Bible was a literal history of that world. And what you saw around you was what God had created and it hadn't changed since that time. And when Mary discovered the ichthyosaur and later the plesiosaur, these were animals that were um, no, no longer existed. Uh, and it raised a lot of questions about whether you could trust the Bible, what, uh, what God was up to. How could God create animals and then allow them to die out? That was not part of the plan. And um, I think that those are the sort of questions that somebody who has a little income and a little more time and has been educated, uh, formally educated, could delve into more than Mary. Mary didn't have the luxury of the time and the education to ask these questions. And I wanted to get into some of that. So I thought Elizabeth would be the perfect foil for Mary. Um, and also, I wanted to explore the, um, uh, Mary's uh, trying to make her way in a world that was really predominantly of, uh, run by men so that she found the fossils, but they bought them off of her and then never mentioned her. They went on to lecture about them and write about them, publish about them, and never mentioned Mary. And I felt like she needed an advocate, and Elizabeth provided that, exactly that. So that was how she came into the, into the book. And as you mentioned, um, Elizabeth and her sisters, Louise and Margaret, are just the perfect characters from a Jane Austen novel. And um, indeed, we, we, we learn that, um, that yes. possibly uh, Margaret was at the assembly hall and, and met assembly rooms and met Jane Austen. Yes, Jane Austen, as you probably know, was uh, spent some time, a couple of seasons in Lyme. They would go, they would go, the Austens would be in Bath or go to Bath and then go to Lyme afterwards. I think it was in 1804 and 1805 they did this. And um, there's even an account of Jane Austen meeting Richard Anning, Mary Anning's father, who was a cabinet maker. 
And uh, she had a little traveling box that she, a traveling chest that she, the lid was broken and she got a quote from him on fixing it. And he um, quoted way too high for her. So she, and she wrote to her sister Cassandra and said, you know, the furniture in the shop was worth less than what he quoted for me to pay the box. So I'm gonna take my business elsewhere. And I love this and I desperately wanted to use this in the book, but what I often find as a re when I'm doing research, as a historical novelist, you, you, you get a lot of stuff in and you have to use what actually works for the book. And so I couldn't shoot, it would have looked like I was trying to shoehorn it in. So I didn't, but I did realize after, after I was looking at the dates and I had written about Margaret going to the assembly rooms, I thought, well, she could easily have met, Mary, uh, met Jane Austen. And so I did weave that in that she was a, 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 a Margaret read Jane Austen's books. I, I sort of felt like I had to name check Jane Austen because everybody's gonna be reading this and saying it's Georgian, it's set right during Jane Austen time, and it's about spinsters who never marry, and it's just, you know, so I thought, okay, I've gotta face this head on. And, and in fact, Elizabeth says at one point to Margaret, you know, life is not like your novels. It's not gonna turn out the way, the happy ending, the way you want it to. And, um, and indeed, this is in a way is a book about a Jane, Jane Austen characters who don't find Mr. Darcy, who, who, who actually don't get married, and Jane Austen herself never married, um, and she never addresses that in her, in her novels. And I think this is, it just shows you what you can do without having to get, without the marriage. Um, so it's about, it's, a, it's really about, it's not an anti-Jane Austen novel, but it kind of it moves sideways. All of your books have a very strong sense of place. And of course, obviously, this is Lyme Regis. And Lyme Regis has been an inspiration to writers from yes. Jane Austen, Persuasion to John Fowles, now you. What is it about the place itself? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really special place. It's, for one thing, it's very isolated. It always has been. And um, it's, it's isolated by its geography. It's down in this valley um, that's not easy to get to, although you can get to it by sea. And, um, it's, it's attracted over the centuries, because it had a harbor, you get a lot of foreign trade. Um, you get people settling who are isolated from the rest of the country. There were a lot of dissenters there, people who weren't Church of England. So you got a lot of Baptists, Quakers. Mary and her family were Congregationalists. Um, this interesting mix of people, and I feel like it's still like that. Um, maybe not so much if you go during August or bank holidays when it's overrun with tourists, but if you go off season, you get all the kind of crazies come out. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of artists there. It's, it's, um, it's, it's also just dominated by its geography. It's, the sea is very beautiful. It's got this man-made um, fa famous uh, harbor thing called the Cobb, this finger of stone that sticks out. And that's where the French lieutenant's woman, Meryl Streep, goes and does her thing at the end of it. And, um, uh, and it's, but it's, it's also just very, uh, it's quite kind of eccentric. I think it really fosters eccentricity, and that was one of the things that drew me to both women mm -hmm. and, and to the place itself. Now, we mentioned, you mentioned research, and um, mm -hmm. you're famous for the research, uh, Tracy, uh, you know, even for um, Burning Bright, learning how to make buttons, and um, mm. for Fallen Angels, becoming a, a tour guide in Highgate yeah. Cemetery. Um, so, you went digging for fossils? I sure did, yes, definitely, and um, I think I probably always will now, because I've, I've got the bug, and... Uh, I went, um, the, my, my husband uh, used to go to Lyme Regis as a kid for holidays, and that was how I first got to know Lyme Regis. And he and uh, my son and I went out on the beach, and I remember the first time just feeling like I, wasn't, I didn't find anything except fool, fool's gold. And, 
And I just felt, oh, I'm never going to be able to figure this out. And, but then I got to know um, a man from the museum in Lyme who is a fossil collector, a fossil hunter. And there are a lot of fossil hunters there uh, who do it professionally still. And he took me out. His name is Patty Howe. And he took me out. And I guess he kind of calmed me down. Because when you go fossil hunting, you can't be thinking of other things. Or you kind of have to let your mind, it's almost like a meditation. And you just look and then suddenly you start seeing and you have to put the time in and and uh, but it helped to have somebody to, to show me what I was looking for because the the subtle differences between what's a rock and a fossil it is quite subtle some of it so you have to take your time and find it but he helped me a lot and now I have found a few I found a huge vertebra of a plesiosaur about that big and um, I found a shoulder bone of a plesiosaur too so and all other bits and pieces and um, so I, I loved really getting into, I love spending time at the beach doing that. And I, I would be happy just doing that and never writing, actually. So, <laughs> But the research is, it is crucial to get into it. But there, there comes a point where you're doing a lot of research like that, and you realize you're answering. I mean, the, when I stop is when I realize that I have questions that I haven't, can't answer anymore. I'm, I'm always looking for the perfect book or article that's going to answer all the questions I have. And I realize I'm not finding it. And that's when I think, well, the book that I'm looking for is the one I have to write. So that's when I sort of stop and, and start writing. But throughout the writing, other questions get thrown up. And I also, like, I, I, you know, I ri I'd written most of the book, and I had to go out on the beach again just to get a sense of things. And I suddenly, you know, you just feel things again and add them in. So it's kind of to enrich it. And then do you, do you also have to throw a lot away? Yeah. Do you have to forget that you know so much? You, um, I probably use about a tenth of what I what I research, and I um, I write it in notebooks. And uh, Rose Tremaine, who is um, was my tutor at, at University of East Anglia, and um, a great contemporary and historical novelist, she said about the research: you should do the research and then put the notebooks away. Never look at them. Don't look at your notes when you're writing. And I try to follow that. And in fact, Jim Crace, another novelist, said you should don't even take notes. You should just do the research and then. And I could never do that. I think I, I like my notebooks too much. I like the concrete. I think it's my real hands-on. I like to touch things. And when I'm, when I'm writing, I have uh, on the walls, I have um, paper, you know, maps and pictures all over the walls. And I also have like the fossils all around me so that I can hold them and look at them. And I, I'm very tactile. Um, but so I like to have the notebook, but I know what Rose means that you you I actually find it exhausting looking back through my notes It's just so kind of there's just so much there and it's so dense and every time I go through it I find myself slowing down so I I do try to set them aside I mean, I think ideally that's what you do you do the research to become comfortable mm -hmm. in the period and with the subject matter that you're writing about But then you have to leave it and, and trust yourself to be able to do it, right? What is it about the past that so draws you? It's a good question. You know, when I was a student, I didn't really, I was not a student of history at all. I was, literature is different. And um, I, I think uh, as I got to 30, 30 seemed to be the turning point. I became more interested in my family history and started looking backwards. And I think it's a, it's a way of um, two things. One is I'm trying to get away from myself. When I write contemporary stuff, I feel like it's too much me, too much of my voice, too much about, about my own preoccupations. And I need a little distance. I think I need a little privacy and a little um, you know, get away from myself. I think I write better when I'm not writing about myself. So it's partly that you know, step back in the past really makes that leap. And 
Um, but also, I think that as I grow older, I'm trying to make sense of living in the present. And um, I don't want to become an existentialist wreck. And so I, I'm looking backwards and forwards to try to make mm -hmm. connections. And, um, and I do that through writing. Mm -hmm. Because this is very much a novel of ideas, as I touched yes. on in the introduction. Yeah. Um, do you ever feel um, that, forgive me, there is something parasitic about taking mm. real-life characters yeah. and breathing life into them again and putting them... Because a great deal of this, this novel, and indeed all of your novels, is made up. <laughs> yes, yes. How do well, you feel about that? Well, it's interesting. Two of my novels don't have anybody made up, or any real people in them. The Virgin Blue, my first novel, and Falling Angels, it has Emmeline Pankhurst, but only briefly. She's just got a walk-on part. And, um, and I find that um, they, uh, they, I don't feel any different about them from the books that are about real people. They, they all become on the same level. And um, so it, it doesn't bother me. It only bothered me, bothers me in so much as uh, the limitations of somebody's life, you have to sort of stick to the facts and, that, and, and the way their story, the way their lives unfold. And that can be a bit tricky because um, our lives don't, we aren't, we, don't, we aren't living Hollywood movies where we have the, you know, the beginning and then the development and then the arc and the, you know, the, the climax and the denouement, the kind of storytelling that we're all used to hearing. People's lives don't work like that. And, and I had a big struggle with Mary because there are a lot of things that happen in her life, and the, but there's these long patches where nothing happens. And um, if I actually stuck to, I had a lot of dates in the first draft because I always was dating everything. And I realized they were just ruining the arc of the story. So I just took them out. So there's a couple of dates in it that are really specific events that actually took place, and I wanted the dates to be there. But otherwise, it's much more of a blur, and I think that I try to keep true to what actually happened, but I, I kind of blend blur it a little bit. And, but, but as for being parasitic, it's, um, I would feel worse about it, except that I feel like every book you write is, is still about the real world. Unless I was writing science fiction, I would still be researching. Even if I wrote a contemporary novel, I'd still be researching uh, the characters I, I make up, I don't tend to base them on real people, but you do find yourself taking little bits and pieces from what you know, and you do end up writing from yourself. And I think that um, it's hard to make that distinction between um, what, is, what is a real person and what isn't after a while. So I try not to worry about it too much. But mm -hmm. I, it, it can be a limitation at times. And certainly I have, I have certain boundaries I won't go over. I would never write about someone whose family, whose immediate family is still alive. Um, you know, anybody 20th century, really, I would, I, I just don't think it's, it doesn't feel right to do that, um, especially if their kids are still alive or their grandchildren. And so, but I think, you know, Vermeer was far enough back, Mary Anning, I have heard from some of her descendants, there seem to be a lot of Annings around. They always come out of the woodwork when you're, <laughs> when you're writing something. And I did once hear from a descendant of Vermeer, too. Um, and that was a really, we had a really interesting, uh, uh, email um, connection and he told me that um, he sent me a picture of himself and he said if you look in the painting of um, the woman at the at the virginals with her back to us it's the one that the queen owns well there's a man who's like her teacher standing sideways and there's his profile and he said compare that profile to mine and by god he did have the same exactly the same profile I was like wow so um, but he was very happy with Girl with Pearl Earring thank goodness but I did get an email once from somebody a reader who was really angry and um, 
she's not a relative, but she said, if I were a descendant of Vermeer, I would sue you. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Tracy, was she an American? She might have been. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> Um, well, I'm sure that you've got lots of questions you'd like to ask too, so wave at us and we'll get a microphone to you as I tell you what, speedily I'll, as we can. Shall I cho I'll choose. It's easier to do the one where you can have a little rat. <laughs> it's easier, otherwise we get all... Yep, do I see anybody? Any... I've struck you dumb. Fabulous. We have... Oh, yeah, over, yeah. over here. Please. Very nice to be able to see you now. <laughs> Very good. Um, you said that uh, you really, really enjoy your research. Do you find that uh, sometimes you don't even want to start your writing? Do you find that maybe um, you feel like you just want to do more and more research and yes. your writing's too limited? In a word, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think the thing about writing is that the moment you put something down, you're shutting a lot of doors. And um, when, while, while I'm doing the research, everything is possible in the book. And then when I write the first sentence, I have to decide what the, what the character's name is, where they are, what they look like, all of these things. So, oh, she's, you know, and, and little doors, like she's brunette rather than blonde, that's okay. But if you decide it's set during this period of her life rather than that period, it's, it's, making, a, it's, it's making a big decision. And, um, and, and then it means you have to stop doing the research that maybe you might have loved. And one of the really hard things is to let go, like that Jane Austen story, is letting go of the stuff that you think, oh, that, that makes such, that would be so great to, sh to, to get it in here. But if it doesn't work, you have to leave it. Um, so yes, I am seduced, often seduced by research. And I have to recognize when, it, when it's useful and when it's becoming a procrastination technique. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes. Yeah, sorry, nope, we'll we have to get a microphone to you, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Be, I'm going to be cheeky. I'd like I to love su cheeky. suggest a subject that's always interested me. Okay. And that is Berengaria. She was the Queen of Richard III, I think. And when she went out to marry him, she was shipwrecked in, in Cyprus. So it's got to do with the Crusades. Mm. And there's a whole story about her and her maid. <laughs> And I'd love you to write something. Why don't you write it? <laughs> you can do it. Yes, you can. No. <laughs> this is going to become a pep talk now. Come and see me afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We have oh. someone yeah. over here, please. Can you tell us a bit about your process of putting fiction together? with fact, because it, it, mm. it's, it works beautifully in your books, but I'd like to know how the process works for you. Thank you. I'm glad that you're saying it works beautifully, because I'm always worried that readers are going to be frustrated, annoyed at me, because they're saying, well, what's fiction and what's fact? And Because and, I try to blend them together so you can't tell. And often when I'm talking, I realize I'm going in and out of, of saying what is something that really happened, and then, oh, but this didn't happen. And I don't always flag that for people. So it's, it's, a it's, it's this kind of blending together. Um, it's, uh, I, as I said before, I really do, I feel okay about, I feel happy about writing about people who existed, because they provide me with a framework that I might not have been able to come up with otherwise. Um, and I find myself grounded in reality. Um, it's very hard to get away. I, I do admire, although I don't read science fiction, I admire it a lot because I, 
it's, it's the one kind of writing that actually really does go on a journey outside of what we know and uh, what, what exists. Um, but I could never manage it myself. It's always, my stuff is always grounded in, in the real. Um, but to fictionalize it, you do have to let go of the real as well. And it's a, it's a constant process of um, doing the research enough so that you build up a vision of what that world was like and, um, and, and allow the building up of it to become um, slightly different from what the real is. So I, when I'm writing every day, I'll, go, I'll, I'll, I'll get steeped in that world and I'll know that what I've written is not exactly how Mary Anning's life was, but it's true to the emotional sense of it. And, and that's, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult distinction to make, but it's, um, I, I have to accept that it's not going to be 100% accurate and that, it's, that it is my vision and that that's okay, I can, I'm allowed to do that because that's what you do too when you read a book. Whatever um, I have written, you will take it and make it your own and it becomes your own world in, in your head. Um, and that's why in a way like making a film or a television thing out of a, of a book is always such an odd process for, every, for everybody involved because when you as a reader have read something that you've created the world in your head, the way I've created it in my head, to see somebody else's creation is quite an odd uh, thing. And like a, a film is so insistent, you know, this is how it is, this is how it looks, whereas you can go, no, 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 this is how it is. And a book is, is, allows you that leeway. So I have the leeway of taking reality and making it into a fiction and then you have the leeway of taking the fiction and making it into your own reality, if that makes sense. Okay. Yes. Ah, yes, Anthony. Uh, Tracy, continuing this particular theme, yeah. um, why can you not adopt, to avoid the perils of uh, faction, why can't you adopt the Roman Aclair and instead of course, um, change the name slightly, which would at least distance it by one point, because it's always a problem for the reader of knowing what is true and what is not. So what about the Roman Aclair? It is so difficult that, that's Anthony Beaver. He's come here to say, you have, he writes uh, history, historical, you know, you have to do all fa uh, fact and not fiction, so it must be hard for you to always stick to the facts. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> Uh-oh, we'll take it up after. Um, it's interesting because it made me think of um, Gaynor Arnold, who's actually speaking here either now or a little bit later. She has written a novel called Girl in a Blue Dress, which is about, well, it's ostensibly about Catherine Dickens, Charles Dickens' wife. But she does just that. She, she calls her uh, An Anthea Gibson or something. I, and I, and it's, it's about the relationship between Charles Dickens and his wife, but they call them different and so she uses a lot of um, the same things that happen in the Dickens family, and yet she changes things too. And I don't know, I suppose I feel like it's too much, um, for me that would be, uh, I, I like the structure that forces me, it, that would give me too many options, maybe that's what it is. I do like the facts to be the skeleton that I can then um, ad lib from, and, uh, but, but that I still go back to. Uh, so I. I just think it would give, I need to have boundaries, and maybe the boundaries of fact allow the fiction to blossom, if that makes sense, ish. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
Hello. Uh, Tracy, you've often written about a very young adolescent girl. Um, what, yeah. in your mind, is the advantage of that for your book? Um, it's funny because I hadn't really noticed it until Burning Bright and people kept pointing it out to me and I thought, oh God, I do. And, and I thought, I mustn't do that the next time. But of course, Mary, the book takes place when Mary starts when she's five and it ends when she's 24. And um, though Elizabeth is 20 years older than that, so there's a woman. But I think that um, I often write about change and, and growth. And maybe uh, I, it's easier to write about adolescence because that's when there's an obvious growth and change. Um, whereas when you're older, you don't necessarily. And, that's, and, and the thing is, that's, I'm sort of sad as I'm saying that because that's not the case. That's not what I've found the case to be. I feel like I'm changing even though I'm in my 40s. I have different ideas and change is still possible. But maybe it's a, um, we all do change when we're adolescents and um, it's easier for the reader to relate to that maybe than and older, and the thing is, uh, like, if I have, we have all been teenagers, whereas um, teenagers haven't. So, like, we can all relate to something that's younger. But if I wrote something that was about older people, younger people wouldn't be able to relate to it. So maybe that. I mean, I have. I'm just sort of thinking aloud here because I don't have a, a strategy. I just uh, seem to be attracted to that age group. Um, but it could be. Just, I think it is mostly about change, probably that change is the, it's the most obvious. But I'm going to work on that. Maybe I'll try to move my characters to a different age. Yes. Oh, yeah. Tracy, can you tell, tell us if you have a particular discipline of writing every day and what your kind of timetable right. is? And also, how long from start to finish when you have a book? Sure. Um, Start to finish, a book takes, it takes as long as it takes, and some books have taken, um, Girl of the Pearl Earring took a year, which um, would be great if all of my books could take so little time, but uh, the, the Burning Bright took three years, and this has taken two and a half, and it's around about two to three years in general. Um, and my, my writing discipline is, um, I have a 10-year-old son, so once he's at school, then I start writing, and then you know when he comes home or I go and pick him up, that's sort of the end. So it's a kind of school day time, and um, I try to uh, I try to stick to it. I try not to. The the problem is the internet really. Um, it's become this. It just sucks you in, and then two hours later you realize you've wasted all that time. So I do try. I write longhand, and um, that means that I can write in other rooms other than the room that has a computer in it. Um, I kind of like that room, but I can, if, if I feel like I'm too stuck on that or can't turn, you know, or I turn the computer off, um, then I sit and I write longhand and um, then type in at the end of the day what I've written. So I, I probably work between about nine and three. And um, when, I'm, when, I'm write, when I'm in the writing stage, I mean, first though, I do all the research and so that takes me to libraries or sometimes I just sit at home and read all day. Um, or I go and see things or talk to people. So it's a, but, but I do try to, um, when I have a writing day, I try to write a thousand words because that just feels like the right amount for me to write. Um, m most of the scenes I write are three to 4,000 words long, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, but it means that I, I have several days on one scene rather than writing it all in one go. And that's good because I'm, I change all the time. I, I'm a different on one day from another day. So it's like, I liken it in my head to, like painting a wall, you know, if you just go like that, that 
it, it looks like that, but so you have to go over the same bit like, like that and then like that. And that's the different days, so like day one and day two and day three. And so it becomes a little bit more, more textured, sorry, um, that, that way. So, and a thousand words feels just like, if I write, I get tired if I write more than that. I, I feel guilty if I write less than that. So kind of stuck in between. So the perfect, I feel good if I've written a thousand. So, and very, very virtuous if I write more than that. Uh, yeah, how about there? So the. Your subjects are all very different. How long do you find that you have to wait before you can start immersing yourself in something which is completely different from what you've been researching before? It's tricky, that. It, 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 it partly depends. Um, often, you know, I'll turn in a book, and then there's a long gap between when the editing is finished and when it comes out. Sometimes there's a long gap, sometimes there's not a long gap, but say there's a gap of nine months, and I'll be, so when I'm doing all this, I might be well into the next book. And it's very odd to go back and talk about a book um, when you're thinking about, you're, you're working on the next one, um, but it's, a, it's life. As it happens with this one, there's a short gap, and so I am thinking about the next one, but I haven't started researching it um, in, a, in a specific sense yet, or targeted. And um, so it's, uh, it, it is a, an odd thing to be doing the two at once, though. Very odd. Um, and I sometimes wish I had more time to, I, I always wish I could take more time off, but I never do. The thing is, I did once take a few, I thought I'll take six months off, and I took a month off, and then I was on to the, because the research is so different from the writing that it's a great breath of fresh air when you start a new book. You just, it's a different, it's not like it's competing with, publicity or writing. It's more, it's more a different sort of thing. So you can do the two at the same time. We have someone in the back row over here, please. Um, hello, Tracy. I just wanted to ask that you mentioned you have a 10-year-old son. Yeah. And I wondered if he ever asks you to write a story for him or if you ever mm -hmm. thought about writing children's stories. Uh, constantly, yes. He's always saying, when are you going to write something for me? And um, I've dedicated this book to him, but that's not enough. It's not enough. Um, and in fact, I, I worked with his, I went to visit his class in his school a year ago, uh, a year and a bit ago. And we did this, um, I talked about writing, and then we came up, I had an idea for a kid's story, and they helped me develop it a bit. And ever after in the playground, kids come up to me and say, Tracy, when are you going to finish that book? Or is it come, has it come out yet? And I always feel terribly guilty because I haven't um, gotten much further with it. And I would like to, but it's, um, it's, it's difficult. It's like asking somebody who, who cooks, who's a good French cook to cook Japanese food. It's a very different skill to write for children. And um, I'm a little terrified of it, to be honest, because they are such harsh critics. Um, I remember when I was reading to my son when he was younger. He's a little more polite now. But when he was young, uh, you know, if he didn't like a book, he would just you know, reach over and shut the book. Uh, <laughs> or he'd turn his back. Or, you know, it, they, they, and I worked with his class when they were a lot younger. And I did some writing with them. And sometimes if I did a lot of preparation because I hadn't worked with kids much, so I was pretty nervous. And if uh, I was doing something with them, an exercise or a little game or something, and they didn't like it, kids literally turned their backs or started talking to each other. And they are that way about books. I noticed my son, if he doesn't get into a book within 20 pages or so, 10 or 20 pages, it's 
not going to work. Whereas we're a little more polite. You'll give me 50 pages, will you? Yeah, you know, 30 pages maybe. But so it's it's a it's a difficult. But I would like to someday. I think it would be a great change of uh, of the gears in my brain just to move to something else. I. Um, I have thought sometimes, do I, maybe I could do something else. I don't want to write nonfiction. I'm just hopeless at it. I, I think I just stray off the path too much, and I, I don't know how to make, I don't know how to write nonfiction in a way that will make it um, feel, feel real and yet be heightened. And I worry about the heightening and how you do that without um, messing up. You know, and I, I see it enough in, in newspapers, even when I'm interviewed and I see the interview come out, and it seems so different from, the interview that I had, and uh, and I think, my God, they make all these mistakes. And if if they're making mistakes in a pretty unimportant interview, what about all the front page news that we're reading that is is important for us to get the facts? I'm just praying that they get that right, and I don't know as they do. So, and I, but I also can, and I see that I'm not, I don't have that ability in me to to stick to the straight and narrow and make it good that way. So, not nonfiction. Um, I'm not sure poetry. Oh, I'd be hopeless. And. Uh, but, but maybe kids' books, maybe. So we'll see. We have uh, someone over yes, here, please. Yes, in the green. It's up. Oh. Can you put your hand up because she's having a hard time? Oh, I, no, no, oh, no. I, oh. Is it OK? If I yeah, yeah. And then, and then the lady in green. Yeah. Um, just personally, I give you a third of the book. And then oh, if you haven't you. caught me thank by you. a third, that's my, you're, you're all right. Usually it's about 20 pages. Oh. Um, but I wondered where you get your ideas for a new book. Is it, mm. is it something that, for example, someone will suggest something or just something that you're in, interested in yeah. um, and how it comes about becoming a book? Well, it's very interesting you should ask this now because always in the past my ideas have come in a, in a rush, in a moment. I'll be in a dinosaur museum or going around an exhibition of William Blake or doing a tour of a cemetery and it just comes to me. Something about the place or what I'm looking at just makes me think, I've got to write about this. There's something, a gap there. There's something, a spark and something that I don't understand and I want to understand. And, um, and I want to take that and make it into a book. And it's very clear to me when I get that calling, it's like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. This time, uh, I, this ha it hasn't happened. Uh, when I was in the, usually it happens in the middle of writing a book. I'll have the idea for the next book. Um, and this time I was in the middle of writing this, and I had an idea for the next book, a contemporary idea, and, um, which is a little scary. And I thought, what usually happens is an idea is so strong that it sustains you through the, the finishing of the book, and you still feel strongly about it, and the next, so you go on to it. This time, that, that idea faded a little bit, and then was taken over by another idea, uh, and then taken over by another idea, and I'm just full of ideas, and none of them has really stuck. And um, that, I've, I've never been in that position before, so I'm a little surprised, um, but I'm not yet scared. <laughs> I think I know what I want to write about, but it's like a, um, it's like coming at it from a different angle. And um, one of the the things I, I think the one thing I know I want to have in the next book, uh, and this has not come from a moment; it's come from a lot of different moments. Is that is, is something to do with noise and silence? And um, because I uh, I think as I'm getting older, my hearing is not so good as it was. And I was actually really worried about speaking here because. Charlotte Square, as I remember, 
from years of uh, two times being here is unbelievably noisy outside. And then I heard when, and when it rains too, you can't hear anything. But thankfully today's been okay. But I feel like my, I'm starting to get, I'm starting to be much more sensitive to noise and I crave silence. And I'm, I'm actually reading this book by Sarah Maitland called A Book of Silence, which is about her going to live in, on the Isle of Skye and various other places um, and being silent. And um, I think that it's gonna be historical but I don't know yet, so that's uh, it's. But this, this, so this time, it's it's come out of um, a lot of different stimulus or too much stimulus. I feel like um, rather than in, all in a moment. I have the lady in green, please. Uh, is there any particular character you feel like really attached to in any of your books? Yeah, there's usually one who I feel is is somebody I've you know I'm looking over their shoulder and they're still with me. Um, with uh, Falling Angels, it's Maud. With um, Lady and the Unicorn, it's Alianor, the blind girl. Um, and with uh, with with this, it's actually Elizabeth rather than Mary. Um, I don't know why. I think Elizabeth is more like me than Mary is. And I, I suppose there's always one character I feel has a little bit more of me in her um, than than the others, uh, but, but they're all still there. They're all still living in my head, bubbling al along. And uh, so, and I, and I do think that there's always um, one character that the reader is encouraged to look over their shoulder or sympathize with, with them. And I think that that probably is the same person I always feel about. Well, we could stay a lot longer, but uh, we have gone over because it, oh. we started late. Um, but um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming, um, Tracy, for a wonderful event, and also to remind you that you should all rush and buy Remarkable Creatures now, which you can do in the London Review of Bookshop uh, re signing tent, the London Review of Book signing tent, um, which is next door. And you, if you've got more questions and want to talk to Tracy, then you can meet her there. And if give us a moment to get out of here please so that she can get there before you uh, that would be very much appreciated and thank you very much <laughs>